Father, just join me in prayer. Let's ask for the Spirit of God to work in and through the reading and preaching of God's Word. We need it. Father, we do come again as we ask often and continually, Lord, to bless the reading, the preaching, the hearing, and the applying of your Word. Uh, These words that came from your heart, from your very mouth, breathed out by you with intention and power and purpose and glory. And so open wide our hearts to hear and to receive. And Lord, in, in a way that only you can do, that you've done so many times, you know the specific details in every person hearing this message, everyone sitting in this room And you have a a wonderful way of working by your spirit to speak specifically to each life, to each heart in a way so meaningful and so powerful. Do that again today. Enrich, build up the faith of your people for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are doing a study all together, reading through, preaching through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're coming up today on Nehemiah chapter 4. And so if you've got a device or Bible and would like to turn there, if it's okay, I'd like to just give you a little bit of a paraphrased, bring you up to speed. Here's what's been happening in the storyline in the book of Nehemiah specifically, and hopefully bring you right to the point where we can read together chapter 4. Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king of Persia. Persia was ruling the known world At the time, Nehemiah was a key figure in the king's court. Nehemiah bumped into some friends that had been traveling. They had come up through Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah asked his friends, how's the church doing in Jerusalem? Answer, terrible. Terrible. They're not doing well at all. God's people are there, but you wouldn't know it. There's nothing going on in their lives that would define them. There's nothing going on in their lives that would indicate and communicate that they belong to the Lord. You couldn't tell by the way they were living their lives. You couldn't tell by interacting with them that they were the people of God. It would just seem like they're just people amongst the people. Nothing to distinguish them that they truly belonged to the Lord. This hit Nehemiah extremely hard and sent him into a deep and extensive time of prayer he knew the history of how they had come to this point originally god delivering the people of israel with a mighty hand out of egypt establishing them uh, as a nation leading them calling them separating them out but in time they would all forsake the lord turn to other gods and eventually that led to them being brought once again back into captivity. Nehemiah was aware of this vicious cycle. But Nehemiah was also aware that recently God was on the move again, restoring God's people, bringing them back, sending them down to Jerusalem. They had an opportunity for a fresh start. And to hear that at this point, in the midst of all of God's grace at work, that they were yet again acting like they didn't belong to the people of God. No distinction. Nothing to point out who they belonged to dropped him to his knees. An extended time of prayer, sorrowful prayer, mourning prayer, prayer filled with confession. But that time and season, several months long, 
also led Nehemiah to the promises of God. As he's mourning, as he's confessing, he's also led into the promises of God. And and it began to instill in Nehemiah a, a strong vision to rebuild the church. A vision that began to consume him. A vision that his boss noticed and asked, Nehemiah, what's going on? And Nehemiah explains to the king, this is what's going on with my people. And this is what God is stirring in my heart. He asked the king to send him on a campaign to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And for the king to fund the project. The king said yes. Great, great miracle in the book of Nehemiah right there. The king said yes So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, takes a few days to assess the situation, and begins putting the people to work, rebuilding the walls. Chapter 3 appears to end with the people of God working side by side, whistling while they work, all enjoying the work. The wall is getting built. And now we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. He jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, and what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall." Nehemiah's prayer, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. 
From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we're separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Here's where we're going with this text today, what we can learn from chapter 4, that while church building, church building is the title of our entire series, we are, we are understanding this to be about what we are about. We are church builders. And while they're building the wall in Jerusalem, that translates to you and I being a part of God's people and building in the church. And why church building, we realize is so important. And while it's exciting work, and while every person who's part of the people of God needs to be a part of church building, church building is also fraught with opposition and danger. You simply cannot step into this great project of God without encountering at times significant opposition and danger. But here's the point that I want to make church building is worth fighting for. Church building is worth fighting for, and oftentimes the fight begins with doubt and discouragement. I've heard it said that two of the greatest tools the enemy has, two of the greatest tools that enemy has to stop church building is doubt and discouragement. In an article called Satan's Garage Sale by Donna Kersey, she quotes an anonymous author in that, talking about these two tools that Satan used and how easily they tend to stop church building. She's quoting a, an anonymous author who writes this, nothing paralyzes a person. Nothing stops someone in their tracks like discouragement and doubt, resulting in hopelessness. Discouragement and doubt are no respecters of persons. They can even draw the most powerful ministry to its knees. When overcome with discouragement and doubt that leads to hopelessness, persons cannot pray, they cannot worship, they can become a victim of their environment. Discouragement and doubt drain their victims of courage, vision, faith, expectation, and the will to make a difference in the kingdom of God. If I can get a people discouraged and full of doubt, then I have successfully neutralized them. They are then left with only enough energy to feel hopeless and sorry for themselves. Nehemiah chapter 4 gives us some helpful responses 
to opposition and to danger. How to fight against doubt and discouragement. Nehemiah chapter 4 is a powerful chapter designed to strengthen the church and encourage us in church building. Shows us how to face opposition, how to face danger, and it gives us a realistic expectation for what church building is really like. Let's look at the first point, how to face opposition. These would be verses 1 through 6 in the chapter that we read. Now notice the animosity. Sanballat was angry and enraged. Angry and enraged. Sanballat was the leader in Samaria where they already had a history of opposing this work of the Jews in Jerusalem. We read about it back in Ezra chapter 4 where a group appealed to the king. You've got to watch out for these people. They're a rebellious city. I think that they're working against you, king, and if you let them build up, they will revolt. They've got a history of revolting against the king. So Sanballat, trying to curry favor with the king of Persia, is saying, we're angry about what's taking place here, and we need to put it to an end. This animosity and this person and these leaders and these people listed here is meant to teach us about our enemy. We have a spiritual enemy who's angry constantly at us, with us, about us, because of us. J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful book, A Passion for Faithfulness, Wisdom from the Book of Nehemiah, and it's one of the resources that I used. And when I opened up to his section of the book that talks about Nehemiah chapter 4, he begins the chapter immediately like this. The real theme of Nehemiah 4 through 6 is spiritual warfare. And Nehemiah's real opponent, lurking behind the human opponents, critics and grumblers, who occupies his attention directly, was Satan whose name means adversary, and who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people, God's work, and God's praise. When we make this translation, this understanding, and read this context about a a, a real animosity that existed between people, the New Testament brings us forward and gives us a real helpful understanding on how to interpret this kind of animosity particularly Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's instructing us that we don't have a physical battle to fight as Christians, we have a spiritual battle to fight. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Well, this animosity in Sanballat in particular, but the leaders around him, their first line of attack was with words. Always the easiest first step. Derek Kidna rise to open the attack with a barrage of words was worth trying. It is the enemy's oldest weapon, and in the form of ridicule, it needs no factual ammunition, not even an argument. Just ridicule, belittlement, 
C.S. Lewis says, murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. If you can get it done with a few belittling words, you've won. And what a win it is. If all you had to do was criticize somebody, if all you had to do was belittle them, if all you had to do was spread a little bad rumors about them and you got them to stop, that's quite the victory, an easy victory. What are these feeble Jews doing? So he's in some kind of meeting with all the military leaders, maybe a banquet. Who knows the context? What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it? Will they sacrifice? Are they going to pray this thing into being? Are they going to finish it in a day? Do they have any concept of what they're doing? And Tobiah, not to be outdone, adds in a little jeer. Yeah, if a fox were to run on what they were building, it would fall down. No doubt, a bunch of civil engineers sitting around looking at the shoddy labor and the shoddy work criticizing it, saying it'll never stand, it'll never hold up. And everybody has a good laugh at the expense of the Jews working together to build this wall. It's a real easy advice to say, don't let the words bother you. It's real easy for me to tell you, you to tell me, don't let it bother you. Just let it run off your back. But isn't it, honestly, folks, sometimes a little surprising, maybe a little embarrassing, just how powerful the opinions of others can affect us. Do you find it too? I find it in myself. I'm a little surprised at how easily I can be moved, not even at what somebody else says, but what I think they're thinking. And it tends to lay hold And when you're in the crosshairs of criticism, when somebody stands above you with belittling comments, jeering, jesting, mocking, if you've been in those crosshairs, you know the very real pain and difficulty and pressure and tension that you feel inside yourself. But here's the truth. The power of the gospel, our power, What Christ has given us, the power of the gospel, is so much stronger than that. If you're surprised at how easily you might be moved or stopped or stymied by the opinions of others, know this. The power of the gospel is so much stronger than that power because it comes from one who endured an unusual amount of opposition, an unusual amount of mockery, an unusual amount of jeering. To a greater injustice, no one deserved it less than Jesus, and yet he was heaped upon with mocking and jeering, but he was unmoved and remained faithful to the end. And he did it so that you and I could be free from being subject and vulnerable to the jeering and opposition of others. That's what happened. What did Nehemiah do? What was his response? First response, he prays. Here's our lesson over and over again. Pray first. Pray. What do you do? Trouble. Pray. First thing, pray. Church, what's God telling us? Pray. The opposition comes. It's meant to stop them in their work. It's meant to debilitate them. What does Nehemiah do? He prays, but he prays a unique kind of prayer. Did it 
it all rub you the wrong way? It is what, what's called an imprecatory prayer. To imprecate is to invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies and those perceived as the enemies of God. There are several imprecatory prayers in the Bible. Sometimes we read them and we scratch our head and say, this feels a little uncomfortable. Aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Yes, yes, we are. But something uniquely spiritual is taking place in these moments of imprecatory prayers. A person's heart is getting in God's presence and convictions are growing deeper. And in those moments, rather than being rattled by the criticism and the jeering, a person's heart is getting in God's presence and getting more established, more deeply in what is true and what is right. More in love with who God is and what God is doing. And therefore, the jeering and the opposition begins to come into a certain light. No longer so much about, oh, what do they think about me? And how does this make me feel? And now I feel embarrassed and all these really special people don't think very well of me. And now I feel getting in the presence of God. Who is God? What is God doing? God has called us. God is building. This is God's plan. This is what God is doing. He is glorious. He is mighty. Oh, now everything starts to get into perspective. We are doing what God has called us to do. And when the opposition comes and our response is to pray, then what happens in that time of prayer is that our convictions about what God has called us to do grow deeper and grow stronger. And we become more resilient to the opposition around us. Again, Derek Kirdner writes, the word stung, but they produce not a quiver of indecision, only indignation it stands to reason that if you truly love you're going to be experiencing at the same time some kind of hate if you truly love your children you will truly hate what comes to destroy them what comes to ruin them what is seeking to snatch them away or destroy their lives or take away their happiness or their health. And so you cannot love. There cannot be evil existing for us to love without also hating when what is wrong comes. And now these people, they're being called to be devoted to God, to love God. They are obeying God. God has called them to build this wall. And now they have people opposing what God is doing. Church building is filled with opposition. Church building is worth doing and church building is worth fighting for. He prays and they go back to work. Short prayer. Finished prayer, verse 6. So we built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. In other words, people were not deterred. 
from the jeering, from the opposition, from the criticism, from the laughing, from the mocking. No, they had a mind to work. Nehemiah's strategy enabled the work to go on in spite of the opposition. When opposition comes, when doubt comes, when opinions come to dissuade and to stop you, what's the easiest response? What do you do when you're discouraged? What do you do when doubts come in? What's the easiest thing? Step back. Just back up. Just stop. Do less. Come less. Sing softer. Give less. Serve less. Back off. Show up late. Don't show up. Stop community group. Just pull back. Is is that not the common and easiest response? We've all done it to varying degrees. We've all felt the pull. Oh, it's getting harder. Oh, it's not meeting with a lot of approval. It's not turning out the way I thought. And so we step back. But friends, church building is worth fighting for. What does fighting look like? We pray, we get in God's presence, and we become clear, and we become clearer on what is right and what is good, who is right and who is good. And through that, the Spirit will strengthen our hearts for the work He's called us to do, which is what we need. We need this to be a Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered work together. Secondly, how to face Danger. We go from ridicule to the threat of danger. If the words don't stop them, then they threatened with force. Reminds me a little bit of the beginning of the book of Job when Satan is trying to get at Job. And first he takes everything that he has, all his possessions, all his family, takes it away. And it doesn't work. And Job doesn't bite. He doesn't respond. He's not forsaking God. And so what does Satan say to God next round? Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. Same thing happening. Little ridicule didn't do it. Little mocking. Everybody making fun of you. They kept at the work. They kept at it. Okay, next round. I think we're going to have to step up our game here if we're going to stop these people from building this wall. Let's get the armies together, and let's plan for an attack. Let's threaten them with danger. Our section of verses 10 through 14, or 10 through 12, give us a little insight as to like problems just coming from all sides. And I don't know if you've experienced this. Sometimes I think I can handle a problem or two. But it's those times when all of a sudden they start coming from all sides. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that? If it was just one thing, I think I'd be doing okay. But it's not one thing. It's three things. It's coming from all sides. And and, and what are we seeing here? The the threat was real. They were planning an attack. The armies were working together. They had their strategy. Word was out. We're going to make an attack against these Jews and stop them from building this wall. They're not even going to know it. We're going to sneak up in the middle of the night. We're going to be upon them before they even realize it. And we're going to kill them. We're going to put an end to this work. Rumor was that the people's strength was failing as well. The work was long. The work was hard. They were tired. 
It was not easy work. They were losing their strength. They were ready for a break. They could only go on so long. They only had so much physical strength. And their own ranks were recommending that they stop. The phrase there, you must return to us, is a little bit uncertain in the Hebrew. The translators don't quite know what that means. Packer translated the same statement. Wherever you turn, they're going to attack you. They're on us no matter what we do. Whatever specifically is in those few Hebrew words, we know this, that people were discouraged and they were trying to convince everybody, you've, you've got to stop. It's just getting too bad. It's too hard. We won't make enough progress here. There's too many enemies. They're, they're, they're out to hurt us. They're out to kill us. They want us to stop. It doesn't matter what you do. We can't win this battle. Notice how doubt and discouragement do not necessarily remain quietly inside a person's heart. It often spreads like a cancer. They're communicating one to another. You're so tired. The enemies are coming. And they were not entirely united. What did Nehemiah do? You could guess it. He prayed. What's God saying? Pray. Trouble? Time to pray. First step of action? Let's pray. Verse 9, and we prayed to our God, and we set a guard. Here it is. Prayer and action. Prayer and action. Not prayer with no action. Not action with no prayer. Prayer first, action following. Faith-filled action, wise action, prayer-filled action. The threat of danger was real, and when there's real danger, you must take guard against it. And Nehemiah gives the speech, verse 14, the speech, great speech, wonderful speech, one of these grand speeches that great leaders give to their people, these inspiring sentences that so fill everybody's heart with faith. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Addressing the felt need, don't be afraid. You're afraid, you're trembling, I can see it. Listen, do not be afraid of them. Why, oh, how, here, remember the Lord. Remember who he is. Think about who God is. Think about how great he is. Think about how right he is, how awesome, how powerful, how truthful, how faithful. Remember what he's done. Remember how he did it all. Remember his promises. Whatever the circumstances are that you are facing at this very moment, don't forget who God is. Nothing puts trouble into perspective better than to remember the Lord. The times we don't want to think about the Lord because we're thinking so much about our trouble and our problems and we're consumed with what it is and we feel it and it's upon us and we're tired and it's hard and they're strong and we're not. And what does Nehemiah counsel their souls to do? Don't be afraid. Remember who God is. That will set your heart right. 
That will stir and strengthen faith in your soul. You will find energy when you remember who the Lord is. And fight. Fight for the ones you love. Oh, this is not just about you. Fight for those who you love. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters, your wives, your homes, your families. This is about something bigger than your own individual lives. This is about something bigger than even just this generation and this event. Fight for future generations. Church building is worth fighting for. Our children, the next generation, they need a healthy church. We need to pass the baton to the next generation. It needs to be a healthy, praying, faith-filled church that knows how to trust the Lord, that knows how to seek the Lord. Church building is glorious work. It's dangerous work. It's work well worth doing, well worth fighting for. Third point, realistic expectation. The sword and the trowel. Have you heard the phrase? Wonderful magazine, I think several magazines with that title. The main one that people know is the one that Charles Spurgeon started in 1865 called The Sword and the Trowel. His ministry from the Metropolitan Tabernacle was expanding. So many ministries were starting. Missionaries were being sent out. And he was trying to organize some cohesiveness as the ministry was expanding. And he started this magazine called The Sword and the Trowel. Church building and keeping watch against the enemy are the two things you and I must be constant in. We have two job descriptions. Build the church. And guard against the enemy. These things have to be in our lives simultaneously. And as we read the chapter, what do we see? We've got everybody working with their sword strapped to their side. They're building the wall. I just, they're fighting and they're laying brick. They're like doing two things. Everybody's assigned. It's all going on. We've got two things that just have to happen simultaneously. I'm sorry, but life isn't simple enough for us to do one thing. I'm a guy. I like to do one thing. I like to think about one thing, but now I've got to think about two things because we've got to build and we've got to guard and we've got to fight. Both things are happening. Both things are upon us constantly and simultaneously. And so we get this picture of construction workers and soldiers back and forth Stay and guard, build the wall, fight against the enemy, be ready for an attack, keep building, don't stop building, keep the stones piling, keep the mortar going, haul more away, haul more in, keep your eye out, listen for the trumpet, keep your sword handy, keep your bow handy. We've got an enemy who could come at any moment and take us down. Friends, this is just a simple reality of the Christian life. It is what it is. It's what we're called to. Both things have to happen. We could lay out all the verses in the New Testament about keeping watch and, and guarding. This is precisely what they're talking about. We have an enemy who is enraged at what we're doing. We have an enemy who is angry and enraged and wants to stop you 
from trusting the Lord. He's serious. He's deadly. So it's not a figment of my imagination. It is really dangerous. Souls are at stake. People's well-being is at stake. He's a real enemy who does want to destroy. And so you must be on your guard against him. If you are not on your guard, if all you're doing is building the wall, but you're not on guard, the enemy will come and take you out. What does guarding look like? Well, let's do both. What does church building look like? They built a wall around Jerusalem. That's the picture that we have. What does building for us look like? I want to read you a little list. I want to read you a list. It's a long list. I don't mean to overwhelm you. It's the list of one another's. I'm not trying to barrage you with so many things, too many things that you can't do. What I want is for the effect to settle in your soul. This is what building looks like. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not talking about our mission and outreach. It's not talking about the fighting against sin within our own soul. It's talking about how you and I relate to one another. This is how we build the church. There's only 33. Don't worry. Here we go. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess your sins one to another. Love one another. Through love, serve one another. Tolerate one another in love. Greet one another. Be devoted to one another in love. Give preference to one another in honor. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Serve one another. Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. Be subject to one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Do not judge one another and don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Husbands and wives, don't deprive one another of physical intimacy. Bear one another's burdens. Speak the truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Encourage and build up one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. Build the church. There's starting point list. How are we going to build the church? Do this. Now, notice something about the list. And Foster brought this out last week. I thought so well. I don't know what your skill set is, but when it's time to build the wall, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> okay? It doesn't matter what your skill set is. Okay? We'd love to use your gifts, but what we need is we need people to build the wall. So regardless of your specialities, come and help build. Now, did you notice this list of 33 one another's that I read? Anybody can do any one of those things. Every one of us can do every one of those things. You don't need a special skill set to do any of these one another. It's just like building a wall. You can haul a stone. You can shovel a load of dirt, a load of mortar. You can do it. The work is doable by every single person who belongs to the people of God. That's what it looks like to build 
the church. That's what church building looks like. And what does guarding look like for us? I'll just read to you some familiar passages that talk about how this takes place. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You Think about that. Okay. Keep the truth close. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, your standing in Christ, righteousness imputed to you from Christ, you, you keep that on you, protecting you. Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Ready to go, ready to be sent, ready to speak, ready to care, ready to serve. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Warfare, fighting, soldiering is very much a part of who we are in Christ. One day it will not be so, but until that enemy is totally vanquished and thrown into the lake of fire forever, we've got to fight on our hands. Fight for your soul. Fight for the souls of your children and your friends and your neighbors. Worship team, you can come on up in conclusion. We stepped into a situation in Nehemiah chapter 4 where so many were discouraged, where everyone felt weary and tired, and everyone was completely aware that the task was beyond them. But how does a group of feeble, tired underdogs accomplish a task that is too big for them? By getting right what their forefathers did not. By keeping the Lord first and keeping their devotion to the Lord the most important thing about themselves. That's what's most important about you most important about us as a congregation in this local church, that our devotion to the Lord be primary and first and most important. We are not different from these people. And our future as one local church is no less dependent on you and I placing our trust in God as it was for them. So together we seek him in prayer before each step of the way to remember who God is, to continually keep ourselves more aware of the promises of God than the obstacles that we face. Friends, church family, church building is worth fighting for. This is a glorious work. It's an adventurous work. It's painful work it's tiresome work but it's glorious work it's the one thing that is going to last into eternity and it is worth fighting for so we pray 
we keep at our work, and we guard diligently against the enemy. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close with a song.